Um, I'm not sure how much longer this current series that we're going to be speaking of, but our heart for our church is that we would remain on mission, that you've seen it and heard it over the last seven weeks about living on mission. As a church, we're not here to just spectate. We're not here to see what we can get. Uh, What has the church done for me lately? Uh, It's to remember what Christ did for us ultimately and to say we're just going to live on mission, on his mission as a gathering. And if you uh, have a chance, go back, listen to the messages you've missed. I'll be away in the next uh, couple of weeks, and so I'm not sure what the fellows are going to be doing, but I know it will be good. It always is. And uh, so we're going to look at this uh, part two of last week. Last week was really special. If you weren't here, I'd really encourage you to go on. We had uh, our brother Frank Capri share his testimony of what the Lord's been doing in his life recently. Grab your Kleenex box. You're going to need it. Uh, And then Zach Brown had to follow that up and did a fantastic job as well. And then we began last week with a short portion uh, of this talk today, and so we're going to finish uh, the second part of uh, the second part of the two-part series in a seven-part series. We ch- tracking? Okay, so grab your notepads because you're going to need to take some notes uh, tonight. Love to encourage you to go uh, home later and just get in his word and allow his word to get in, into your heart. So today's title is simply this, uh, On Mission, Passing It On. Last week, passing the torch, tonight, passing it on, because uh, we, we, as we mentioned last week, and you saw it tonight, there's a lot of kids here, and uh, we believe as the leadership of our church that one of the great responsibilities we have is for the next generation. We don't take it for granted that we have a number of, uh, of young people in this place, and we are, we are thrilled to death about it. Uh, and so... It's a major part of who we see ourselves uh, and see our particular expression of his mission. And we figured it's probably a good idea for all of us to be on that same page. So, you know, this week we saw a number of uh, people out on the street standing up for the next generation, standing outside of schools, marching uh, for, the, for the next generation of leaders, of, of uh, teenagers, of the church, of Jesus followers, and uh, standing against, you know, the, the gender ideology being uh, pushed on kids kids in the school system. Uh, It's been twisted to make it sound like it was hateful against uh, those who are of the LGBT community, but that was not it at all. That wasn't the mission of what was happening. It was simply that 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 ideology is not meant to be in the school system and standing for the protection and safety of all children. I thought it was pretty neat. Some of you were there, uh, saw lots of videos of other things, but you know, as I thought about it, I think it's good for us to stand for the things that we're against for sure. But there's a much more difficult and much more long-standing thing is that we need for people that more than just standing for one day, but those who will stand for life, those who will run for their lifetime in that, in that uh, way of running alongside the next generation so we can pass the torch to them. And so tonight we're jumping right into the point. So number one, if you're taking notes, it's this, it starts with hearts. It starts with hearts. Passing it on starts with hearts. Uh, the Old Testament, if you go to, the, if you go to Malachi chapter 4, Malachi chapter 4, uh, if uh, it's right at the end of the New Testament, if you hit uh, some red letters, you went too far. Just go back a wee little bit. This is the very last word spoken to the nation of Israel, which is what the Old Testament is written to. It was the last word spoken to them by the prophet Malachi, or Malachi if you're Italian. So Malachi says uh, this in, in, in uh, Malachi 4. He says in verse 5, he, uh, it just, just, if you even just read to the beginning of, of that chapter, you see that there's a warning of a judgment coming, that the day of the Lord is coming, and that judgment will come on the, on the, on the uh, wickedness in the land. 
But he says this in verse 5. He says, look, I'm sending you the prophet Elijah before the great and dreadful day that the, of the Lord arrives. And his preaching is going to turn the hearts of fathers to the children and the hearts of children to their fathers. Otherwise, I'll come and I'll strike the land with a curse. And you read this and it's like, there's no like, amen. There's no the end. There's just that. Just leaves this, this, these, these words lingering. And then it goes silent for 400 years. Didn't hear the voice of the Lord for 400 years. And then all of a sudden, if you begin flipping to the right and just go past Matthew and go just to the first chapter of Luke, a messenger of the Lord comes to um, this guy named Zechariah in Luke chapter 1. They haven't heard, they, they haven't heard uh, uh, from a prophet, they haven't heard the voice of the Lord in like 400 years. Nothing's, there's, there's been nothing new, nothing fresh, and yet they carried on with what they knew. And there's a guy named Zachariah, he's in the temple, he's ministering to the Lord as they've been commanded to do, and all of a sudden a messenger comes to him and gives him this message that he's going to have a son, even in his old age. And there's a number of things he says about this son, and you would know him as John, uh, who later is John the Baptist, but he's described before he's born uh, in Luke. Luke chapter 1, and, and in verse 17, there's a number of things that he's uh, told that he's going to be and that he's going to do. But in verse 17, he says this. Uh, he says, he will be a man with the spirit and power of Elijah. He will prepare the people for the coming of the Lord. He will turn the hearts of fathers to their children. He will cause those who are rebellious to accept the wisdom of the godly. You can imagine Zachariah who's been like waiting and waiting and waiting. The last thing he's ever heard from the Lord is that there's going to be somebody who comes who's going to turn hearts of fathers to their children, turn hearts of children to their fathers. And all of a sudden the messenger tells him that's going to be your boy. And he knows he knows that something, something powerful is happening. There's a work of the Lord happening in that moment. And uh, there's a lot more to it uh, than just what we're talking about tonight. And feel free to dig in and study that uh, even further. But something begins with this young boy named John. Something begins with him as he grows up and begins to preach. That he begins turning the hearts of fathers to their children. And you know that, that turning of hearts of fathers to their children is more about parenting. If I asked around this room, I'm like, how many dads love your kids? You probably want to put your hand up. You know, I got two, three, right? <laughs> nobody's, right, nobody's like uh, intentionally going to keep their hand out, even if they don't, even if that's not the answer. They just make sure everyone else thinks it is, right? Like nobody wants to be known as the dad who doesn't love their kids. So you think this, you're like, well, that seems sort of strange that he's like, well, his preaching's going to turn the hearts towards the, the children. But it's not just about parenting or just about doing something. He's, he's, he's talking about the, the essence of their being. Their wholeness of themselves is turned towards their children. It's about heart. It's about heart. And just because someone's alive and their heart's beating doesn't mean that they have any heart. Uh, we see it, you know, the famous Wizard of Oz, the Tin Woodman in the Wizard of Oz. What's he known for? He has no, he has no heart, right? And we like, some of you are like, I, I don't recognize that. You'll recognize the next guy. He's from the Toronto Maple Leafs, also has the same issue, right? No heart. They play hockey, but I know it's that season again, right? No, no heart. Uh, our baseball team today, you know, never mind. Okay. Can <laughs> Sorry, Gary, you can get me back in a couple weeks. All right, so, but you know, this, uh, at our home the last little while, we've been reading this book called Unbroken. 
It's a story of Louis Zamperini. I've been reading the youth version to my boys. And uh, Louis Zamperini, if you haven't read about this guy, he is so worth reading. But here, here's a guy who runs with his, his whole heart. Most of the time was from the cops until he found out he could run fast. And then he became an Olympian. Uh, and he lived with all of his heart. No matter what he faced, he's like, I am like, the essence of me is in this. And it's where, you know, it's not from this story, but maybe you've heard the phrase, you got to put your heart into it. You got to put your heart into it, put your heart and soul into it. it means to do something wholeheartedly. And that's what, you know, that's what the, the prophecy was about John and this, this thing that would begin that, that the hearts of fathers would be towards their children. They'd be wholeheartedly towards them. It's like, it's grabbing like a piece of you and turning it towards them. And when you hear those, um, hear those words, we just sort of hear them. We kind of take it for granted. We live in like a, a, a culture and a country that's been highly influenced by the words of Jesus. We kind of live with that in hindsight. When these were spoken, this was during like the Roman Empire. In the Roman Empire, children were not necessarily, I mean, they were, they were plent, uh, plentiful, but not necessarily valued. They, they talk about how much like infanticide happened there. Baby was born, didn't like it. Okay, you could just end its life. There was others where it was more of abandonment. It's like you didn't like them. All right, just leave them outside. Maybe somebody will like them. You know, and then there was the selling of your child and, and these things that later on, a couple hundred years later, were, uh, were banned. And, and much of that is because of the words uh, and the influence that Jesus had on the world. Women and children in that time were often considered more like property than persons. And Jesus, when he spoke, like he, he continually reiterated the value of children. Like he would say shocking things. He'd put a kid in front of a bunch of adults and say, hey, you guys be more like this child. Crazy, crazy things. And we live in a culture that sort of has taken that for granted. I shouldn't say culture. We live in a nation that's taken that for granted. Our culture is going backwards on this issue. But it's a reminder for us today, any of us as Jesus followers, that it still starts with hearts. It's what he's looking at. You know, if you think about history over the centuries, from that time till, till uh, you know, the, the recent history, the family was actually the center uh, and chief developer and discipler of children. That's where like everything happened. That's where they were trained was in their homes. Many families, they just lived on a farm. And if they didn't live on a farm, they lived in, the, in a city. But they all kind of lived in the house of their business and their industry. It was all one. Uh, there's a, a book uh, by Nancy Piercy called um, Total Truth. And she describes it like this. And we still see it. As you can see in the picture, in the old cities, it, was, it would be like the, you know, the butcher had his like, butcher shop down at the, at the front. And then in the back is where they lived. You know, and next door would be the baker. And uh, you could just kind of walk down the street and get your groceries and, you know, get your watch repaired and get everything else uh, done in that way. And, and yet they lived, they lived where they worked and worked where they lived, you know, reading the, um, the hiding place uh, with our family. And uh, we read about how Corey Ten Boom and her sister, they lived with their father and there was a little watchmaker shop in the front. And uh, as you went back into the place, you found their home. And you know what else you found in the home? Dad. You found the fathers in the home all the time. It was like as life was going on, the, the, there was this impartation, this, 
this, um, this discipleship, this mentoring that was happening simply because they were there, right? They would pass on their skills and their trades, but they would pass on their faith as well. And uh, in historical colonial literature, when it's written about parenting, it's actually addressed to the dads. Now you go on blogs, you find parent, all parenting blogs, they're like, they're all followed by moms. You know, there's just too many flowers and other things in there for us guys to be like, get too excited about. But it's written to the, to the moms. But then it was all written to the dads uh, with the assumption it's the dads who were overseeing all that in their home. And you're like, it's not Father's Day. Exactly. And tonight is not a Father's Day message. And it's not one of those things where like, well, we're going we're gonna to revert and go back. Highly unlikely, almost impossible. And yet the principle behind it for us is to realize that that was the norm. That was the norm up until just a couple hundred years ago when the Industrial Revolution happened. And then all of a sudden it was like, well, dads could make a whole lot more money if they moved out of the home. And uh, instead of the hearts being turned to the children, I thought, you know, of the emojis, it would be like this, that the hearts were turned to the dollar. The heart to the dollar. That's what began to happen. And as they went through that, it left a gap. You know, all of a sudden we've got kids at home with mom and mom begins to step into a role that she hasn't always filled. And she's filling this role and doing a, doing a, as good of a job as possible. But it was meant to be shared. And as they kind of go through this, it went well for a while. A lot of times the wives knew just as much. If the husband was a, was a leather worker and he's gone, well, she would just take over and the kids would join in and it was this thing. But that gap began to widen and began to grow and all of a sudden we've got, we've got moms at home with lots of little kids and, and then they're like, well, the education and that, 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 that mentorship of skills and traits, it begins to fall by the wayside. And so what do we do? Well, let's create public schools so we can send the kids so at least they're going to get an education. And that gap wasn't just filled by like the education, which you know, originally started for many good reasons. It wasn't just filled with education. Peers began to fill that void. And people would become more like their peers and movements would start out of that. And and whole groups of certain ages would progress in certain ways. Why? Why? Because we actually lost something in in that moment. It's not something that we can necessarily get back as a culture, but we can definitely get it back as the church. You know, I'd like to say, and I've said it many times, that as a parent, God's called you to be the chief educator of your child. You are. And you can delegate that responsibility to a school, to a tutor, to, to anyone else. But you can't abdicate that responsibility. And what I think we've seen over time is that parents have just abdicated the, the education of their children to the schools. And it's like, oh, you know, they, they go to school. The schools will take care of educating them. And they've also abdicated because they become used to it. We've abdicated our role, uh, our spiritual role in the lives of our kids. It's so easy for them to be like, well, they're in kids' church. You know, they're taking care of the spiritual side. And it was never meant to be that way. And we talked about that a little bit last week. But what's happened as a result is that for many, their heart is no longer in it. They might still feed their kids and they might love their kids and they might, but their heart for discipleship and mentorship of their children has waned. You know, I had to chuckle, you know, over the last couple of weeks. How many times I've heard parents say, oh, I'm so glad my kids are finally back in school. I thought, man, it's like this relief that finally my kids are out from under my tutelage. And yet God's called us as parents, called us as adults. And it's not just dads, it's as as parents and as adults 
to see that. And so one thing I kind of liked about this whole movement that's happened in our, in our world, in our, our nation this week, is that hearts are being turned back towards the kids. People are rising up all over the place and like, no, no wait a second. We, we, we want back in. We, we don't want you just doing whatever you want with our kids. We want back in. I love that. I think that that should be something that's stirred in the hearts of us as well. So number one, passing it on, it starts with hearts. It's not about what we do. It's where it comes from. And second, it runs on mentorship. Passing it on runs on mentorship. You can jot that down. That's point two. And uh, mentorship is an interesting thing because you don't actually have to be a parent, a biological parent to mentor. Parenting is about bringing up children, providing for all of their needs, uh, investing in their life. But mentoring is, this, is, is a separate thing. But it's, it's, some parents are mentors. But mentors don't necessarily have to be parents. The, the job of the mentor is, is advising and training and assisting. Passing something that you possess on to someone else. Passing something that you possess, whether that's knowledge, whether that's experience, whether that's wisdom, passing that on to someone else. And you're like, well, what about scripture? What does scripture say about this? And it's glad you asked because we have scripture that specifically teaches us this. Jot down these two things. Second Timothy two, verse two. I'm just going to put them on the screen for you. Second Timothy two, verse two. I'm not, but our media team, amazing media team will do that. Timothy, and we read this last week, Paul said to Timothy, Timothy, you've heard me teach things that have been confirmed by many reliable witnesses. Now teach these truths to other trustworthy people who will be able to pass them on to others. And we talked about this last week about how as one passes it on to the next, they have the responsibility to pass it on to the others. It was this mentorship. Stick with them long enough that they get to understand it and they're trustworthy enough. You know they're trustworthy so they can carry that on. In Titus, we see, you know, in in Timothy, we see it to the men. In Titus, we see it to the women. Titus 2, verse 3. Similarly, and he had been speaking to Titus about men as well. Now he says, similarly to women. Teach the older women to live in a way that honors God. What a great thought. And you're like, well, what is a life that honors God as an older woman? They said this, they must not slander others or be heavy drinkers. Okay, you can probably like check, check. Uh, Instead, they should teach others what is good. Verse four, these older women must train the younger women to love their husbands and their children, to live wisely and to be pure, to work in their homes, to do good and to be submissive to their husbands. That's a whole nother sermon. Then they will not bring shame on the word of God. What's Tim Paul's appealing to, to Titus and saying, Titus, like, you're not the one who's got to do everything. Recognize the amount of wisdom and mentorship that you have just all around you. Call on them to pass it on to the next generation. Call on these women to live lives that honor the Lord by passing this on to other women. And, you know, we see that all throughout Scripture. We see this over and over and over again, where there was many, many people. Maybe, maybe we'll just do a little pop quiz and see. You know, uh, this, this intentional mentorship that you see, you see the fruit in the life of the, of the second person. You know, if we have the life of Jacob... I'll give you these ones for free, but the life of Jacob, the influence is his father, Isaac. And the Isaac, the influence is his father, Abraham. And it's mentioned over and over and over, the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. There was this influence in how they lived out a life of faith because of the one who had gone before them. But that's, you know, fathers, we, yeah, we get that. But what about the rest? Anybody know who Ruth had in her life that helped her live out her life uh, for the Lord? Good job, Naomi, her mother-in-law. Fellas, 
Enough said. Um, how about Esther? Yeah, Uncle Mordecai. Love that name. Somebody bring it back. Uncle Mordecai was there to help Esther and said, you know, he's famous for those, those words that, that maybe you came to the kingdom for such a time as this. Esther, I know you're just, you know, my niece, but God, I see God on your life. And yes, this is a big step to take, but take it because you got him on your side and Uncle Mordecai backing you up. Man, we need some Uncle Mordecai's in our kids' lives. Then what about Joshua? You got it. Moses in leadership saying, Joshua, you're going to be a leader. I've been there. I've done some things. Let me pour out into you what I know. What about Elisha? It's an easy one. Elijah, you're right. Saying, hey, in ministry, let me show you what I've done. Come under my, come under my mantle. And it's, you, know, you read the story, you see how he just asked, like, Lord, give me a double portion of his mantle. And you see that. And then some of these ones are a little trickier, but John Mark. Anybody know who John Mark? So when people are like, not going to shout it out, maybe. Do you know who his cousin was? Hey, I love these people. Study their Bibles. Barnabas, the son of encouragement. It was like when Paul said, Mark is useless. We're not taking him anywhere anymore. Barnabas is like, no, no, hold on. There's some good qualities in him still. And, and Paul's like, I don't see it. See you later. And Barnabas is like, okay, I'm going to go find him. And he found John Mark and he took him under his wing. And we see, we're so grateful for that because guess who wrote the book of Mark? John Mark, yes. And then Timothy and Titus, who did they have? Guy named Paul. There's a guy named Apollos. Any idea? This one's a real tricky one. But who, who was one of the ones who helped Apollos know the truth for himself? Two ladies. Yeah. Well, they sound like ladies. You got, man. Kings, you guys rock. I just love it. I love it. Sorry, that's like a happy pastor moment. I, I can't. In the word, right? Priscilla and Aquila. Two people who said, hey, Apollos, let me, let me show you. And then how about the disciples? Who did they have? You got it, right? Like he, uh, he, he showed it over and over and over again, this, this mentorship of saying, hey, let me run with you and, and, and show you. you know, I, I see it too that like there's so many uh, following that. But just even in, the, in this week, uh, as we're reading through these books, I see it with Louis Zamperini. His brother Peter would literally run with him. And then when he couldn't keep up, he would bike behind him. Uh, and he would be like, the cops are coming, the cops are coming. And just, he's actually just running a race. But reminding him to run faster. And then I think about Corey Ten Boom. Boom. Corey Ten Boom is famous. Many people know her name, but do you know her dad's name? Casper. Casper Ten Boom. Man, this guy was like in his 80s. And it just says, as you read the book, it doesn't make, it doesn't point it out as if it's a big deal. But it says every night he would sit there and they would open the word. And he would read and he would study and he would pray and he would show hospitality in his home. He was still living in that generation where dad was in the home. And guess what? These girls were so, uh, her and her sister Betsy were so, so uh, mentored by their dad in the love for the gospel that it was the very, the very thing that kept her going when she was in Hitler's concentration camps. Her sister, it was, it was her, her dying thing was to keep the, the word of God present present in those camps man and then I think of people in my life like I think of my parents I think of what uh, they poured into my life there's a guy named Dan Chapman who was just another student in Bible school who was older and took me under his wing I think about Wes DeVries over at Sweets Corners wouldn't be here if it wasn't for him but it's these people who ran on mentorship and so I think about that when I challenge us with this thought about building the next generation have you thought about that like we say building the next generation, I, I, I mean that like in the literal sense. 
like building, like laying the block foundation. Do we have a picture of that? Laying the block foundation, building the next generation. I want you to picture it like this. Helping to build a faith of their own. That our young people, that we would have this thought, that our hearts would be turned to the fact that they would have a faith of their own. Why? Not just a faith, the faith of their own. This week, um, maybe it was this week, last week, Zach and I went out and met with a bunch of other pastors and the talk around the table was, hey, fellas, you guys have any, like, you guys have any insight on people deconstructing their faith? It's a big thing right now. Lots of people are deconstructing their faith. They grew up in the church and they ran into something they didn't understand. And so now they're kind of taking their faith apart. Some are leaving the faith altogether. Others, it's very crazy. They're, they're setting aside the Bible in order to be able to follow Jesus better. Yeah, I know. But that's happening. That's happening all around us. It's actually, it's not a, it's not a, uh, a rare thing. There's so many people going through this deconstruction and, and, and there's websites and all kinds of stuff to help people, support groups walking through this. You were burned by church, now we deconstruct. My, my question is this, have we considered as a church um, about building, building the, the next generation or helping them build a faith that doesn't need to be deconstructed later? It's in how that building happens. If you, if you think about it, it, it requires us not just teaching them what to think, but how to think. Not just in our kids' ministries that we're just saying, oh, hey, the answer is always Jesus. You know, the trick question, right? What's gray, furry, and lives in a tree and eats nuts? Exactly. It's always Jesus. It doesn't matter what the question is. Too, too, too many people grew up in Sunday school and kids ministry and youth group and junior youth where that was what they had. They were given information and taught how to think, but they weren't given transformation or pursuit of Christ uh, and the inspiration that he brings. And that's what I think we, you know, to stir up in our hearts as we see these young people. We don't want them just to have information about God. We want them to be transformed by him, to experience him here that they would truly build their life on the rock. Why? Because when the storms of life come, and they will come in their lives, they would be prepared to stand firm. Just write Luke chapter 6. For the sake of time, we're not going to go through it tonight. Luke chapter 6, 46 to 49. It's a famous story. talks about the two men who built their house on the sand and built their house on the rock. One of them survives. We all know it to be the one who built his house on the rock. But what was it? It was simply those who heard and followed Jesus. We don't want to just have stuff where people are heard, but that they would follow you know, you got guys like Solomon who just encouraged his children to follow after God, to pursue God at a young age. If you, if you look at the first seven chapters, I, I encourage you to do this. Go home, just look at the first seven chapters of Proverbs and, and underline all the places where he's like, my child or my son. And you'll find out in every one of these chapters, he says things like this. My son, listen to my correction. My child, treasure my commands. Never forget what I taught you. Pursue wisdom. Don't get into debt. Follow my advice. He's like begging them begging them. And I think that's where we need to be in that spot too, of just continually encouraging that putting the precepts of the Lord into their hearts and into their minds. And, and we get to this point of the message tonight. And some may parents may say, some adults may say, well, we did that with our kids, but it didn't turn out that way. We did that with our kids. We, we honestly did that to the best of our ability. And now they're not serving the Lord. And I want to uh, take the Last part of this tonight to share it this way, that it goes both ways. 
if you're a young person here tonight, it rests on you as well. That the whole idea of mentorship and passing it on is not just about parents. And maybe you're like sitting here like, yeah, let my parents have it. You know, just keep preaching at them. And you're thinking about Chuck E. Cheese or something else. It's time to come back because this next part is just for you. Just for you. You know, the first part is just focused on the one passing the baton. But there's two people in that exchange. You know, when those runners pass the baton, there's somebody who has to take it. This year, it's amazing at how many people drop the baton in these races. Just Google it. There are all kinds of them. But the one that I found this uh, earlier was in Duke University, the women's 4 by 100 They were, like, again, favored to win it all. And the, every single of the, of the transfers went perfectly fine and the last girl her name's Megan McGinnis she was running the last leg of the race and just about there and really close to another person and they 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 collided a little bit nothing big but she dropped the baton a few feet from the end of the race and as she ran across she thought she had carried it across and so she didn't go back to pick it up allowing every other team to run by her and then realizing in the replay that she had cost her team and it's a big deal for them because here's sponsorships and here's all of these things that are on the line for these, young, uh, for these young women, but that's all it took, right? It, does, it, it actually doesn't matter how well we pass the baton to the next generation. It rests on uh, our, our younger people as well today to say, you know what? Yeah, you're right. I, I'm going to need to carry this as well. You play a major part. And it doesn't, I, I hope our kids ministry kids, and they realize that as they're getting older, that they play a major part in the mission and vision of Kingsway Church, of Christ and his church, that he desires, as we learned earlier, not just to turn the hearts, the wholehearted parents towards the kids. He desires to turn the hearts of the kids wholeheartedly to the fathers. Man, we need the Lord to do that in our teens. We need the Lord to do that. Maybe I'll just turn my thing and just preach to these guys right here. <laughs> can, can, I, can I say the words of Solomon to you guys in Proverbs chapter 4? Jot these ones down, especially you here in the front. Matthew 4 verse 4. I'm not, not kidding. Solomon says this. He's like, my father taught me, take my words to heart. Follow my commands, you'll live. Get wisdom, develop good judgment. Don't forget my words, don't turn away from them. Don't turn your back on wisdom, for she will protect you. Love her, she'll guard you. And then verse seven, getting wisdom is the wisest thing you can do. And whatever else you do, develop good judgment. Man, as parents, we're all like, yes, yes, we agree. Solomon, tell my kid, you know, wisdom is the wisest thing that they could get and knowledge and good judgment. Can I tell you where you'll find it? You're going to find it in another person, in another person. Uh, You know, you think in Proverbs 13, verse 20, uh, Solomon writes this. He says, walk with the wise, you become wise. You associate with fools, you get in trouble. He doesn't say when you hang out with fools, you become foolish. You just get in trouble. You usually just are too close to their stupid things and you get, you know, blamed for it. But walk with the wise. You choose to find wise people and walk with them. You will become wise. And the truly wise people realize that wisdom didn't come from themselves. And they're actually going to point you in a direction of true wisdom, which we see in Proverbs 9 verse 10. He says, fear of the Lord is a foundation of wisdom. You want to build wisdom in your life. Fear him first. Start there. Like realize, maybe I don't understand God. I don't understand the Bible, but I'm going to turn my heart and reverence to my creator. I realize someone out there is bigger than me and that I would choose carefully who I'll follow. You know, a uh, quick story for you guys, uh, you know, and thinking about his parents too. You know, how did it work out for Solomon? 
But we, we, we get to see how it worked and how it didn't. And in Solomon's life, he had this kid named Rehoboam. And Rehoboam was actually the next in line to be king. And so when Solomon passed away, Solomon, the guy who's like begging his child, like, listen to my words, take my advice, do, you know, do all of this thing, pursue wisdom. That, that dad, it's his kid that when he passes away, the whole nation of Israel, it's really important to recognize it. You can read in 1 Kings 12, but the whole nation of Israel comes and says, Rehoboam, we want you to be king. And he's like, okay, sweet deal. And And uh, they said to him, but we have this thing. He's like, your dad was pretty hard on us. He taxed us a lot. And it was like, we'd like to have a little bit. You you make it easier on us and we will be your loyal servants for the rest of our lives. And he's like, okay, give me three days to think about it. And then he goes and he starts asking for advice because that's what his dad had taught him. You know, there's there's wisdoms found in the multitude of counselors. And he goes to his dad's counselors, his dad's guys who are wise. He says, hey, what do you guys think I should do? And they're like, do what those people say, man. They will follow you. You need their loyalty. And he's like, okay, thanks. And then he goes to his buddies. He's like, hey, fellas, what do you guys think we should do? And they're like, yeah, exactly. Oh, man, you know what? Here's what I would tell them. Tell them, you know, I got more anger in my pinky finger than, than my dad's waist. You know, like, you thought he was hard. I'm going to whip you with, you know, scorpions. And they're like, yeah, yeah, good call. Let's go do that. And so he goes, and you can read it. Like, that's really in there. And Rehoboam's like, he goes to the people and like, so what's your answer? And he's like, yeah. My little pinky finger is bigger than my dad's waist. You guys thought it was hard. I'm taxing you double. And guess what happened? 10 out of 12 of the tribes said, see you later. And it says in the end, in verse 17 and f- further, he, all he had left was one tribe. It's all he had left was one tribe. Why? Didn't pursue wisdom. Didn't pursue the Lord. Didn't do everything. And, and, and it caught up with him. Junior youth this week, we're studying the life of Josiah, another eight-year-old kid who gets thrown into the place of being king. And what does he do? He's like, God, I just, I got to know you. Like, I want to know you. And he decided he would, he would seek the Lord from the age of 16. Didn't even, they didn't even have this. It was lost. But then when it was finally found and it was read to him, he's like, Lord, like I haven't done this. And, 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 and tore his garments and said, I'm going to follow after you. Think of these words, you know, Ecclesiastes, Solomon just writes, remember the Lord, remember your creator in the days of your youth. Frank mentioned a song last week. There's a new name written in glory. And I was like, I gotta listen to this song. It's sweet. Uh, If you haven't heard it, man, play it. It is great. But there's a line in there that says, I've met the author of my story and he's mine. Man, we need not just, I mean, across this room, we need to truly meet the author of our story Every single person should. And then same with our kids, that they would meet the author of their story. Because it's so, so important for them to realize they're part of the mentorship cycle, that they would pass on what's been passed on to them. I'm going to ask our ushers if you guys can grab the communion elements and just begin handing those out. I thought of just this with, you know, a picture of it this week when I saw my daughter. She's been uh, playing piano, taking piano lessons for years. And uh, then uh, over the past couple, uh, month or so, all of a sudden she started teaching these little, these little tiny, I'm sorry, I shouldn't say the little tiny kids. They're your kids, some of you. Um, but these cute little kids. And uh, I thought, man, that's where I see. Here she is. She's still learning from her teacher, but she's realizing I don't have to learn it all to begin teaching some others. And man, I pray that over us. That you're like, man, I, what do I do? Like, I don't know if I know enough. That is the lamest excuse from the enemy I ever heard. Where people are like, I can't, I can't be a part of ministering to kids or whatever because I don't know enough. It isn't about you. 
It's about us pointing to him. Just realizing, man, I know a little bit. I know there's a Jesus. Good, you're qualified. Amen. <laughs> yes. You know why? Because you're like, I have to teach children? Oh man, dear Lord, I better learn something. It's true, isn't it? It's so, so much. Some of you like, they think, oh, they're really trying to get, you know, kids ministry slaves. No, we're not. We're, some, some think that way. We're saying, hey, we know that as you begin to step into the cycle of mentorship, you grow, they grow, you grow, they grow. And you don't have to wait until you're older either. You know, look at First Timothy. Paul says to Timothy, he's like, hey, man, you're young. Do it now. Be an example now to the church. Be an example now. And so as we get ready for communion, I, I want to just finish with these thoughts. Because, you know, we've said it many times and we say it again because we want to remember it. All you have to do is empty your cup. Not this one, please don't. But all you have to do is empty your cup. What has he put in you? What skills, what trades, what things do you know that you could pass on to someone else? And I say start there because out of that you build relationship that you might have the opportunity to also pass on what he's done here. And if you're comfortable with the fact of just simply talking about Christ with others, do it. You're not responsible for what you don't have, but you are responsible for what you do have. And mentorship's more than just passing on the skills and trades. It's passing on the things of the Spirit as well. How do we know? You don't have to turn there. I know you're holding stuff. 1 Corinthians 15. Let me leave you with these two thoughts. We look at the life of Paul, one of the ones who uh, gave us just a great illustration of it. He says this. You can read it right in his words in 1 Corinthians 15. I passed on to you what was most important. I pass on to you what has also been passed on to me. Do we have that verse up there? I was wanting to see that. 1 Corinthians 15, 3. I passed on to you what was most important and what had also been passed on to me. Was he pass on? The gospel. Christ died for our sins, just as the scripture said. He was buried. He was raised from the dead on the third day, just as the scripture said. He was seen by Peter, then by the twelve. After that, he was seen by 500 followers at one time. Most of them are still alive, even though some have died. And he says, then he is seen by James and later by all the apostles. And last of all, as though I've been born at the wrong time, I also saw him. He's like, you know what? I'm going to remind you of the gospel, of what was told, what you've believed. Thank you. And he says, it wasn't just a story. He's like, I've experienced him. I've seen him for myself. I have something to pass on to you. And it's that good news that saves us if we stand firm in it. And we've been called to share it. Which brings us to this moment tonight. See a cup of juice and a piece of bread. And we're like, maybe, you know, you've, you've done this so many times. You forget the significance or for you, you're here the first time. You're like, what, what are they doing? Uh, didn't know there was snack time during church. But tonight, we hear from the words of Paul as well as he echoes the words of Christ. He says, I pass on to you what I've received. When Paul went to the church in Corinth, he's like, fellas, I can give you the gospel and I can tell you and I can teach you about spiritual principles and I can tell your church where it's wrong and all these things. But let me not forget one really, really important thing. Let me pass on to you what was passed on to me by the Lord himself. He says, on the night when he was betrayed, the Lord Jesus took some bread and he gave thanks to God for it. And then he broke it in pieces and said, this is my body, which is given for you. To every church including the one tonight that has ever lived, has ever been, those words 
have the same amount of power today as they did that day. This is not this particular piece of bread, but it's the picture that the God of all creation says, this is my body and it was broken for you. For me, man, like you think about your name, the God of all creation, this, he did this for you. That is, it's mind blowing. Paul's like, let me not forget that. Let me pass this on to you. And to take it and do it in remembrance of me, he says. What do we remember tonight? Grateful that Paul passed it on to them, that he wrote it down, that it got passed on through generation to generation, that you and I would stand here tonight and go, you know what? If I had to stand before a holy God, I am not enough. If I've got to stand before God, I know that I deserve full punishment. And that he took my punishment, that his body was broken for me. Jesus, you are worthy of my praise. And tonight we do this in remembrance of you, as so many have done before. Lord, may we not take it for granted and may we simply remember to pass this on to others that they might experience the goodness, the goodness of your love for us and your sacrifice for us. We do this in your name. Paul goes on to say in the same way he took a cup of wine after supper saying this cup's a new covenant between God and his people. It's an agreement confirmed with his blood. Do this in remembrance of me as often as you drink it because every time you eat this bread and drink this cup, you announce the Lord's death until he comes again. His blood was a requirement for our sin and he willingly poured it out for us. It seems foolish to think that that could wash every human clean. And he says, yeah, it is. The foolish, it seems foolishness to those who are perishing, but to those of us who know that we're saved, and it's the power of God. It is the power of God. We said, I think, Zach, man, when you read that tonight, that it's what he's done for us in Colossians. We've been made right with him. We stand blameless before him because of what he's done. Man, he deserves our gratitude. Let's do that together. Lord, thank you that as we do what you've commanded and called us to do, that we become aware of your very presence. Lord, as we take these emblems into our own bodies, we remember that you truly live within us. Lord, may we as your temple, may we as your church radiate you to our world around us. Fathers, we feel challenged that our hearts might be wholeheartedly towards the next generation that they might know you, that they may pursue the faith for themselves. Father, I pray tonight. Lord, I pray that you'd stir it inside each and every one of us, that we would be united in this and remain on mission for you. Thank you for the gospel passed down to us. Thank you for the good news. We're grateful for it tonight. And Lord Jesus, I pray that above all, you would be praised, glorified, thanked with the gratitude that's due your name for what you've done for us. Lord Jesus, we love you. I'm grateful for this time together. I pray this in your name. Amen.